0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, autism, a diagnosis once considered a predominantly male condition, is on the rise, especially amongst adult women. And this underlies the subtle differences in how autism presents in females. We'll get one woman's story.
1: The biggest thing for me was that I'm extremely loud. I talk a lot, obviously, and I talk loudly, and I can't hear how loudly I talk. I laugh very loudly, and I laugh at inappropriate times. You know, my mouth sort of has a mind of its
0: own. And later, as researchers learn more about what it means to be autistic, is society adapting to be more inclusive?
2: We are not doing a good enough job of being accepting, really accepting of neurodivergence. Autistic people have had such negative experiences of being identified as autistic that they feel that they just can't be their real self.
0: Autism, a surprise midlife diagnosis, and how a growing awareness is leading to greater acceptance. That's coming up on Life Examined. In recent years, there's been a growing and deepening awareness of what it means to be autistic. Once recognized in early childhood, autism today is seen more frequently in mid or later life, and increasingly, when it comes to getting a diagnosis, it appears women have been historically overlooked. That may be because autistic traits frequently present slightly differently between the genders, and also because so many women have been able to mask or camouflage their condition, suffering in silence, trying to fit in. As research continues to grow, autism is now viewed on a broader spectrum and is frequently overshadowed by other disorders like ADHD, OCD, depression, and even anorexia. We'll begin today's show by hearing about one woman's experience. Lauren Ober always knew something was a little off, She struggled in school. She was loud, had weird food and sensory issues, and would get really anxious. Everything changed for her when she discovered, at age 42, that she was autistic. Later, we'll speak to a longtime autism researcher and delve into the history and science and ask what it means to be different in today's world. First, Lauren Ober is a journalist and the executive producer and host of The Loudest Girl in the World. Lauren, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So uh, talk to me about y- your life over the past couple of years, in particular in the pandemic, where it sounds like there, there were things happening in your life and things you were questioning and wondering about that would eventually bring you to this moment of realizing that, uh, that you're autistic. So tell me, tell me about the last few years for you and what was going on.
1: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, all of us, uh, for for a lot of us, the pandemic, you know, was reshuffling um, and and helped us sort of reorient ourselves or maybe point us towards uh, priorities or things that we mattered to us or that maybe had been waylaid by other things. I mean, people left jobs, they left partners, they, you know, left uh, bad housing situations. I mean, there were all these, you know, ways in which I think the pandemic acted um, like some sort of catalyst for change or for inquiry or, or what have you, um, a reexamination. And, you know, for me, I think, um, you know, I've been a journalist for 20 years, and I've uh, worked, you know, basically for myself for almost the last 10 years. And, you know, you sort, sort of figure out your routine and, and you figure out, you know, okay, I don't I don't really have an office to go to, but I have a coffee shop that I regularly go to or I have a sandwich shop that I work at or there are these regular people you see in your neighborhood in ways to sort of like mark the passing of time. You know, you see you you, you run into your favorite barista at the coffee shop and, you know, they they got married or they had a kid or, you know, they graduated from college or something like that, like you and, and I think in the pandemic all of that collapse. And those are things that are really important for me. Um, Those sort of third spaces and that routine was really important. Um, And, you know, I had always sort of had, um, I wouldn't say necessarily mental health troubles, but I've always struggled in a lot of ways um, just sort of moving through the world, never felt very, very seamless. It was always with some amount of friction. And so I had earlier before the pandemic sort of floated the idea with my therapist about autism because I have a lot of sensory challenges, um, and you know I was always in trouble as a kid and all of this stuff, you know, and these. But it but it was never that pressing because your life is bumping along as it usually is, and uh, no need to worry. And then I think the pandemic for me felt like the bottom dropped out mm. on on everything that I. that that was sort of propping me up, um, and making me feel comfortable and, and like everything was moving along smoothly. And so, uh, I just couldn't really function. I like, you know, I, I, I kind of couldn't orient my days, uh, everything that was really just really that I, I built my life around, um, sort of structurally fell apart. And I thought it shouldn't be this hard for me because I wasn't you know, I wasn't an essential worker. Um, no one I knew was in great danger, um, like a lot of other people. And so it, it felt like it shouldn't have been that hard. And so then I started thinking, I need to get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. It became like a real, it became a real compulsion to find answers to a lot of questions, not just sort of like, why am I not functioning in the pandemic? Because I think a lot of us weren't, but other bigger questions that, that uh, I had been stewing over, but sort of kept on the back burner.
0: Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, maybe what we call certain symptoms or you talked about questions of um you know s- sensory uh issues mm-hmm. uh relating to d- different things but maybe give us a little more details to what some of those were I'm curious.
1: Right so it wouldn't be symptoms I would call it traits mm-hmm. um you know I mean basically rather than sort of going into a little primer on autism I'll tell you what what you know, sort of popped up for me as as personality traits or what somebody, you know, what some might consider quirks. I have um, crazy sensory issues with food. I have a lot of... Um, You know, challenges with, uh, you know, fruits in particular, or, you know, there are foods I can't even put in my mouth. I can barely even look at um, because, you know, they turn my stomach. Or I've, I've, it's always been a joke in my family. You know, my parents used to goof with me. Oh, like, you know, mushrooms are poisonous, Lauren. Don't, you know, because of course we can't eat those. You know, Mm. if they were on the pizza, I would like freeze. I'd have to, you know, pull everything out. I'm a very bizarre eater when I, when I do eat, although as an adult I've worked really hard to um, mask that. Um, but I would much prefer to go out to eat than go to a dinner party because uh, I can control what the what the food is and what I'm eating. Mm. Um, but also you know, social issues uh, social, social interaction has been challenging over the course of my life. I mean I never had many friends when I was in elementary school actually I probably had zero um, and didn't really make any actual friends until I was in high school and I was in a, a very small uh, um, prep school that you know that I I ended up going to because I just couldn't function in these big schools where it was a sort of one size fits all situation. Um, I think also the biggest thing for me was that I'm extremely loud. I talk a lot, obviously. We've we've been chatting for just a few minutes and it's mostly been me uh, talking. And so I I talk a lot um, and I talk loudly and I can't hear how loudly I talk. And I laugh very loudly and I laugh at inappropriate times and I make comments at inappropriate times. And, you know, my mouth sort of has a mind of its own. Mm. Uh, And, you know, when you're a kid, that's not great because it means that you're disruptive or, you know, you're always getting into trouble. And that was, really uh, my experience of elementary school and, and to some degree middle school was just, you know, you I could not control, um, you know, the flow of words coming out of my mouth. Mm. And so, you know, that I think there are are these lingering things, these questions that you ask yourself, you know, sort of why was I, why was my desk always at the back of the classroom? Or, you know, why couldn't I just like go to a dinner party and be cool and chill about it? Or, you know, there are just a million questions. Um, and you, and you make yourself feel really bad because sure. you're like, well, I'm not normal. I mm-hmm. mean, whatever normal is, which it's a, garbage word because it means nothing so yeah, yeah. yeah but that's sort of you know for me sort of some of the the indications uh, or indicators that you know that, that this, might, this might fall in line with, you know, an autistic brain.
0: Yeah. So, so talk to me then about kind of finally fitting this, the pieces of this puzzle together. Who did you go to speak to? Was it a doctor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist that helped yeah. you kind of make sense of the fact that you are autistic?
1: Right. I mean, luckily, I've been in therapy for 15 years um, and I believe everybody should be in therapy and therapy should be available to everybody who wants it. Um, But I've I've you know, it's been a priority in my life, um, you know, to sort of fix my own problems. And and so I you know, I was lucky that I could Um, could talk to my therapist about that. And, and I could talk to other resources like, you know, my, my partner has an autistic child who is 19 and in college, but as a result, Uh, she has a lot of resources. My partner has a lot of resources within the community. And so I was able to ask them questions. Um, But in terms of getting a sort of formal diagnosis, which felt very important for me, a lot of people will self-identify as autistic and that's fine because the barriers of care and evaluation are very high. Um, Luckily, I was able to find um, a fairly reasonable diagnostician who could help me out and, you know, evaluate me. And, you know, look, I'm not I'm not a child. I don't need accommodations. I, do, I work for myself. I I can accommodate my own work needs just fine. Um, so I didn't need anything formal, but it was for me a very important to answer questions that I had been having as a way of giving an alternate explanation Rather than the one that I created in my head for why things seem so hard for me, my initial explanation was, well, you're bad. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with you. Um, You're not good. And really, that is not the case. Um, You know, I had applied a lot of judgment, I think, to myself. And that uh, is not correct because I have a, a neurodevelopmental condition. Uh, and I have certain traits that are associated with that. And mm. that can be a totally neutral thing.
0: Yeah. And and I think it, it is really important to think about the language that we use here. And I'm, I'm glad you corrected me earlier to say when I use the word symptoms, you use the word traits. Because I think mm-hmm. this is getting to a question of of how we pathologize things. But then, for example, you use the word diagnosis too, and that can have a certain pathologizing element to it as well. Right. And so I, I, I want to kind of hand this over to you and say, okay, so how do we think about something like autism? What are the words we should be using to understand what it is?
1: Autism as a, as a formal diagnosis is not that old. Um, I mean, the first man who was ever diagnosed as being autistic is still alive today and he's in his eighties. Mm. So it's, it's relatively new in terms of, you know, putting, putting a nice, you know, wrapping paper around it. Like it's, it's not, it, it is really a collection of traits in a way that your brain works differently, that you're more sensitive to particular stimuli or Um, or there are communication challenges, but really like it, I, I use diagnosis because it's a shorthand so that, you know, people can understand, you know, there was, there was my life before I understood myself and Mm. a life after I understood myself and, and what fell in the middle of that was a diagnosis. Um, but really, I mean, I would say it's more of, um, it gives you a language, like a diagnosis gives you a language to both understand yourself better and then to advocate for yourself. And, uh, you know, to say, look, like the reason why I'm terminally late to everything is not because I am bad and I don't like you and I'm rude and I'm inconsiderate or whatever. It's because I have an executive processing issue that is is hard to manage. Mm-hmm. Um And it's, it's not my fault and it doesn't mean that I'm bad and I can try and all of these things, but it allows me the confidence to say, you know, look, it's just not, it's just not me being a jerk, you know, um, my, my brain functions this way. My internal clock is very different. You know, if I can't, if I can't go to the fireworks display, you know, on the 4th of July, it's not because I'm being a stick in the mud. It's because sense from a sensory point of view, it's just too loud. Like I can't handle it. It makes my skin crawl. It feels very bad. And so, you know, it's just, it's just a way for me to sort of explain to myself, there's nothing wrong with me, but look, you know, I say this a lot in the show, which is that if you know one autistic person, you know, one autistic person, and it's a very personal diagnosis. It's a very personal um, condition. It's, you know, some people choose to embrace it and, and you know, there's a community aspect of it and some people feel shame and stigma around it or they choose to sort of be more stealth about it. I mean, it's, there are a million ways that you can identify, but the, my bigger interest is not necessarily like planting a flag and saying, I'm autistic, but rather Trying to get people to understand that there are a million ways of being, and there are a million ways of being that are perfectly acceptable, and that if we just understood that, if we can just give people a wider berth, um, and be more flexible, and understand, you know what, not everybody can sit at a desk from nine to five, and that's perfectly fine. Um, You know, maybe you're built for X and I'm built for Y, or and I don't even mean in a sort of capitalist corporate (laughs) what you're built for. It's just like we're all different, and I think. Understanding that, I, I would hope that this show, if anything, helps people embrace that, that difference, it, that we can accommodate lots of differences, mm-hmm. I would say.
0: Talk to me about the the medium of a podcast to, to which you seem to really excel and, and, and have been quite successful and how how has it been working with the voice? I mean, you talked about the fact that you do naturally love to talk or it's part of who you are. And I, I'm just curious about your life behind a microphone and, and how it suits you.
1: Mm. I mean, <laughs> I was a print journalist for 10 years and then I got into audio and I was like, what was I doing uh-huh. for the first 10 years? Uh, it definitely suits me better. I remember when I was a little girl uh, my grandmother would always say, you know, you should you should be on the news like mm-hmm. you should be on the TV news. And I was like, Grandma, like all those people do is just read from a script and they just read into a mu- camera. I don't know. I was like real sassy kid. And it turns out I actually really love reading a script. Um, there's something about sort of getting the the cadence right and the pitch and the um you know, the ways that you're, you're saying the words and the intonation and all of that stuff, for some reason, I find, you know, it, it delights me. Um, but I also love, I love hearing other people's voices. Uh, you know, I love to make stories using other people's voices. And I think voice is one of those things like you don't have to look a certain way, you don't have to act a certain way. You know, that even if you don't have have a voice as we, you know, as it is commonly understood, like we can communicate. I think it's pretty universal. And I don't know, there's something very soothing about it. Interestingly, though, I have a, I'm not an auditory learner. I'm not an, I have auditory processing challenges. Um, I'm much more of a visual learner and thinker, but Mm. I really love the voice. And yeah, it really suits me. And it suited this project because, I think that, you know, when I was looking around for resources, when I was first thinking about um, autism, you know, and and me, I couldn't find anything that that was from my medium and that suited my tastes and my interests. And so I just decided, I guess I would make it.
0: You mentioned in your podcast this idea of of imposter syndrome in connection with Mm. being autistic. Can you talk about what you mean by that?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that we love to put people in boxes and we love to say, you're too much of this. You're not enough of this. Um, I think that it's very common in our culture now. uh, I'm like, you know. Am I gay enough? You know, like, am I X enough? Am I Y enough? The thinking around, you know, feeling like an imposter, or like, oh, I wasn't autistic enough, is very ableist, right? Because we have this who's to say what is too much or not enough or whatever. I mean, if I have challenges, I have challenges. Um, but I kept thinking to myself, well, you're fine you have a job, you have a house, you've kept a dog alive, like, you are not autistic. And it's like, well, who are you to say, like, what do you know about it? Nothing. Um, Of course, autistic people can do all of those things. Um, You know, it's, there's, there's, (laughs) there's not a limitation, um, just because you're autistic that you couldn't, like, hold down a job. I mean, there are a lot of autistic people, you know, for whom workplaces are very stressful and it's not for them. And that's fine. But, you know, I I had this notion of what it meant to be autistic. And I was like, oh, that doesn't, I don't fit that. I, I'm fine. I'm fine. I kept wanting to say, I'm fine. You're not, you're not autistic. And, you know, also, I think there's a part where you're, you know, you're in your 40s and you're, you know, dipping a toe in the pool and the pool is, you know, it's a lot of. 20-somethings or teenagers on TikTok and Instagram making videos about autism and they know so much and you're like i don't know as much as they do and um but then it's like who cares (laughs) you know like i know what i know i know how i live in my own brain so
0: i i think that's it's a really important point that you're making and i think it it gets to the fact that we want to feel like we are however we define it fully something or fully something else that that we can't we can't be maybe some of this and some of that that's 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 a level of complexity that that i you know whether it's our identity or our brains we don't t- tend to like very much and i think you're getting to that point i think i think it's an important one don't you
1: yeah yeah i mean i think also you know i tend to be more of a black and white thinker in some ways and it's like an all or nothing kind of thing and it's like no there's not one right way of being anything Um, especially in community with other people or you don't even have to participate in community with other people you know you could you can know that you're autistic and then that's just enough for you and it doesn't need to be broadcast and just sort of uh, yet another you know point on the on the graph that is you it's just a data point Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah I think I had to think well what is my relationship to this identity um as I did you know when I came out as as a gay person you know however many years ago that was I was like well am I like am I like out there in the streets like protesting for my rights or am I just like living my truth and just sort of showing up as who I am and you kind of have to find for yourself like how you present in all of your different identities and your complexions and all of that and that's that, that can be hard because you have a lot of external noise telling you you know that you're not enough or you're too much.
0: Well as we begin to wrap up I, I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to mention before we go or something that we didn't get to that you think is really important about, about the podcast you're putting out or about your journey.
1: You know look we all have a sack of rocks don't we? We all have something that we carry around that is hard and heavy and I think that you know that was really important for me and the show to make it feel universal. You know our show is not just about an autistic person for autistic people. I think that there is a lot that can be taken in terms of sort of self love and acceptance and 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 asking something from your community and and you know trusting that they will support you when when you ask and uh, you know I, I think that this. You know, if you listen to this show, it will help you understand one autistic person better, which is me. But I think that all that you know, all of all of what we talk about, can be applied in so many different ways that you know, we we could all use a little bit more grace and understanding and accommodation um, in our lives and from the people in our lives. And so that's, I think, you know, my great goal in this show. You know, was was to hopefully express like, you know, we're not like we're 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 all in the same playing field here. Like we Mm -hmm. can all you know, we're, we're all in this together and we can all offer each other, you know, that sort of kindness and compassion and a wide berth when people need it, even if you don't have some kind of diagnosis.
0: Yeah. I've been speaking with Lauren Ober, producer, podcast host, and executive producer of The Loudest Girl in the World. Lauren, thank you for this, this conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Jonathan. It was a pleasure.
0: Still to come, the history and latest research and why so many people are discovering their autistic later in life. Our next guest, a famed researcher, says she's seen patients coming in for their first autism diagnosis in their 70s. Also, what are your experiences with autism? Do you have the diagnosis, or do you know someone who does? Do you feel that we're becoming more accepting and open to neurodiversity? We'd love for you to chime in on our Facebook page. You can find it by going to kcrw.com lifeexamined, or by searching on Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back in just a moment. This is KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Lauren Ober, producer and podcast host of The Loudest Girl in the World, explain how her surprise autism diagnosis as a forty-something has changed her life. So, does the increase in autism diagnosis mean that autism is on the rise? How is the research advanced to better understand what it means to be autistic? And can we as a society remove the stigma and ostracism and be more welcoming of neurodivergence? Joining me next is Francesca Happe, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at King's College in London. Francesca, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you.
2: Hi, nice to be here.
0: Um, talk to me just a little bit about your background. I mean, th- there are so many, uh, I mean, just different aspects of the brain or of mental disorders that one could study. Um, but you have a real interest and a, a background really looking at autism. Um, why Why autism? What, what jumped out of that about you?
2: Well, I really just became fascinated with autism when I was a, a student. And I was very lucky to have the opportunity to spend one vacation helping with some research on autism. And I went around the country and visited uh, autistic adults and children who had amazing memory skills. And that really piqued my fascination. And, and after that, I was lucky enough to do a PhD with Uta Frith on, uh, on autism. And I've never stopped being fascinated and spent the last 30 years trying to understand autism and autistic people better.
0: Maybe you can tell me about the fascination. I mean, the memory is one thing that jumps out, of course. But, but what is it about the diagnosis that interests you?
2: I think that autistic people think in a very, very interesting way, a very original way. So my experience is that when you're doing experiments and the participants are autistic people, it's never boring, but when you're doing experiments with non-autistic people, with neurotypical people, it's often boring (laughs) because everybody (laughs) does and says the same thing. So I think that's part of the enduring fascination.
0: Mm, Can you give me an example? Maybe somebody comes to mind that you've worked with or, or like a subset in a study?
2: Well, I can think of of days when I've uh, been testing just general intelligence sorts of tests and you ask an autistic young boy maybe um, what are some reasons why we need policemen and he might say to wear helmets or what should you do if you cut your finger and he might say bleed Mm. so they're not the answers that the test is looking for but they're really good answers Mm. and I've also had autistic people come up with new inventions on the spot when you're asking them some fairly mundane question, but they will just have a wonderful creative alternative view of how things might be.
0: Interesting. So so what do we know about autistic people in terms of what's happening in the brain uh, or in the body? Um, wh- what does the latest science tell us?
2: Well, I think the understanding of the brain is still not very advanced. There are a lot of neuroscientists who will say that we're pretty sure that there's something going on at the level of the synapse, that maybe there's an an imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory activity in the brain. But I'm not a biologist. But when I talk to my more biological colleagues, some people will say, that's an enormous advance. We're really making progress. Mm. And other people will say, Well, that's just to say there's something going on in the brain. Everything's to do with the synapse. Everything's to do with the balance between inhibition and excitation. So I think in terms of the brain, a lot of people feel we're probably still mixing apples and oranges, that the category of autism is is very heterogeneous, at least biologically. We're making more progress in terms of understanding the genetics, I think. Mm. So what we know is that a small proportion of autistic people, uh, their autism reflects... a a rare genetic event, a rare genetic mutation. Uh, And most of those people also have intellectual disability. But the majority of autistic people, their autism is caused genetically just like their height. It's due to lots and lots of very common alleles, all of which have a very small effect size. So we're beginning to understand more about the sort of continuity between autism and high autistic traits and then lower autistic traits and then people who we would say definitely aren't autistic.
0: Mm. So then maybe we should go back even further. And I'm very curious as as to when this word autism, for example, even became one that was used commonly or when did researchers begin to notice this collection of traits that we now think of as autism?
2: So historically, people have typically pointed to the work of Leo Kanner, who was uh, a physician working in the States. And in 1943, he wrote a paper where he talked about infantile autism, as he called it. The term autism being borrowed from, in fact, the study of schizophrenia, where it was used to describe the way that an individual might turn away from the world and into their own world, their Mm. inner world. So Kanner is often uh, credited as being the first to, to name and, and identify and describe autism. And his descriptions are very vivid. And, and you can see children like he describes today. Um, but Hans Asperger in Vienna uh, probably independently also described similar children. There's a lot of contra- controversy around who did what first. But in my opinion, neither of these uh, white males were the Mm. first to describe autism. It was actually a Russian female uh, doctor, um, Sukhareva, who first described in the 1920s children who we would now put on the autism spectrum. And interestingly, she didn't only describe boys. She also had a whole paper describing the uh, presentation in girls.
0: Yeah interesting so i mean talk to me then about what we know as as the even recognizing the heterogeneity in within the diagnosis but what do we know about common traits for those that we that are autistic
2: so autism is a is a behavioral diagnosis we don't have a blood test or chromium test so it is just diagnosed on the basis of behavior and the characteristic behaviors that the clinician is looking for are social and communication difficulties and rigid and repetitive behaviour. And often in that second category, there are sensory sensitivities or fascinations. So the way that these manifest can be really very different. You might think of a, a, a child of two or three who doesn't go to his parents, even when hurt or upset, who seems to be happiest playing alone, who spends hours lining up their toy cars, but isn't apparently interested in playing with other children, and who might get very distressed by even tiny changes in maybe the, the cereal packet that of their favorite cereal changes. So you can see those sorts of features in a young child, but the same child grown up or a different individual may be an adult who's autistic, who is very sociable, who really wants to have friends, but finds it difficult to get it right, often says the wrong thing or stands a bit too close or somehow misreads the social rules, who uh, might have very, very good language, but they don't really follow when somebody's uh, joking or being sarcastic. They might take it too literally. And who is still quite rigid and repetitive, might like to eat the same thing every day for lunch or get very upset if minor things in their environment changes. So core characteristics that can have different manifestations.
0: Mm. You mentioned how important it was that that, uh, somebody was describing not just autistic boys or men, but also girls or women. So, I mean, what do we know about how this presents in genders? Is it different in, in boys and girls?
2: That's a very interesting question. So we know that the male to female ratio of diagnosed people is about um, three times as many males as females. But we think that there may be, and there certainly historically has been under recognition of autism in women and girls. Your question was whether that's because autism looks a bit different. And that could be one of the reasons, but I think there are several other ones too. In terms of looking a bit different, And we're talking on average because there'll be, of course, individual differences and and boys who look a bit atypical on the autism spectrum, as well as girls who look very typical. But it seems that girls on average are perhaps more socially motivated. They do a little bit more camouflaging and masking of their autistic traits in order to fit in socially and their special interests, their intense interests, are often in very ordinary kinds of things, boy bands or horses or actresses, whereas autistic boys often have unusual interests. For example, electricity pylons or Thomas the Tank Engine for a 15-year-old boy might be a very unusual interest.
0: Uh, and you used a word that, there was that, that caught my attention, which is the idea of camouflaging. Uh, it's a way perhaps to, I don't know, try and just uh, camouflage into the the environment around you, or what are more normative ways of being, I guess?
2: Yes. So autistic uh, women and some men tell us that they work very hard to appear neurotypical, non-autistic, mm. often because they've been bullied or ostracized because of their autistic behaviors. And they might, for example, Pick a, a woman in their workplace who seems to be socially successful and copy everything about her, how she walks, how she talks, what she talks about, how she does her hair, how she does her makeup, what she wears. And that's their way of trying to, to, to mask so that they won't attract negative attention. And we know that this masking and camouflaging are, are very tiring and also erode the sense of self. There was a, a autistic young woman I was talking to who'd had a, a, a mental Um, breakdown and had to be in hospital. When she came out, she was describing how her friends rallied around her and really supported her. And then she said, but of course, it's not me that they're friends with, it's the mask that I wear. And so all of this affection wasn't reaching her because she didn't feel that she was authentic, even with her friends.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, there's this idea that um, someone may need to hide the way they really feel or the way they want to behave or the way they would perhaps feel a bit more natural in the world, like that, I suppose.
2: That's right. Or, or, or the things that they would really like to talk about. They don't talk about because they get a negative reaction because other people aren't as interested. Or, um, But but I think really it's a, it's evidence that, that we are not doing a good enough job at being accepting, really accepting of, of neurodivergence. Um, because autistic people shouldn't have to be n- non-authentic. I mm-hmm. mean, of course, we all have different ways of behaving for different settings. In a job interview, I'll behave differently from how I will with my family. But I can do that without feeling that it erodes my sense of self, whereas autistic people clearly are, are, are have had such negative experiences um, of, of being identified as autistic, that they feel that they just can't be their real self.
0: You know, it's interesting. In, in the two years plus of, of hosting this program, the word neurodivergent hasn't actually come up much, And but I, I am beginning to hear it around me a lot more. What does that word mean for those that are not familiar with it?
2: So the neurodiversity movement is a parallel with sort of ecological diversity to recognise that there are different types of of brains and minds Mm. and they're not better or worse than each other any more than a cat is better or worse than a fish. But so we talk first about neurodiversity, which encompasses autism, ADHD, the neurotypical mind. And more recently, people have talked about neurodivergent people to mark out those people who are different from the average the 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 largest average group uh, which would be people without these kinds of conditions like autism and adhd dyslexia dyspraxia and so on Um, so neurodivergence is quite a broad category which autism would fall within and the whole of that neurodiversity movement is part of a more sort of social model of disability and disability rights, which stands in contrast to the medical model that situates all the difficulties in the person themselves, mm. as opposed to recognizing that a lot of what makes life difficult for autistic people is the mismatch between our neurotypical world and our demands and the autistic person's way of looking at and thinking about the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And and I want to talk about that a little bit more because there's this this. I think there's this idea when you talk about uh, something like a diagnosis or a disability or—and I think we're trying to move past some of that language—that contained within those words or within a diagnosis is a certain level of distress or pain that needs to be treated. And and I'm sorry if this is such a reductive question, but for those that are autistic, do you find that they do live in a state of pain or distress um, and therefore it's this idea that it needs to be treated in a way. What what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I'm in sympathy with the autistic self-advocates who say that trying to cure somebody's autism is very much as psychiatrists maybe in the last century thought that they should cure people's homosexuality. Mm. Autism is part of who they are and it's not a disease it's a different way of being now that's not to deny that there are autistic people with intellectual disability with epilepsy with severe self-injury who are suffering and who do need help but what the help that they need is to have a good life not necessarily to get rid of the autism Because we can see autistic people who don't have intellectual disability, who don't have language impairments, who find good niches in life and live very happy lives. But personally, I don't think that autism is something to be cured, although I recognize that in our world, being autistic can be disabling.
0: Mm. Well, I think there was always this, uh, this prejudice against the condition. There was this fear. Um, I remember, you know, when I was younger that, f- for example, a vaccine might cause you to have an autistic child and that was considered mm. a bad thing. Uh, maybe you can even address that as, as a very unusual and I think for some disturbing social movement.
2: Uh, oh, yes. Yes. So I, I was involved. In fact, just when my first child was born, I was involved with the Medical Research Council here writing a report to really counter this view that there was any evidence that vaccines cause autism. There is no evidence that vaccines cause autism. There is plenty of evidence that vaccines save lives and that measles kills children. So, um, yes, there's the, the um that was a very worrying worrying time, and it's worrying that some people have held on to that view. That autism is something to be feared, that having an autistic child is something we should be scared of. Society still needs to move a long way um, to to recognise autism as a difference. And there are many parents of autistic children who would say, I wouldn't take the autism out of my child. How could I? That's my child. That's who he is. Mm. Of course, there are other parents who are desperate for something to help their child who has complex, severe support needs. But whether those are to do with the autism or additional problems, I think remains to be better understood.
0: Mm. and also, I, I like how you mentioned that oftentimes um, different diagnoses or conditions um, can run together. How rare it is to just be one thing and. You know, I, I, I've seen this as, as a psychotherapist, and when you look at the DSM, for example, you're diagnosing it, it's very rare that somebody just has, for example, an anxiety disorder. There's probably bits of depression in there, or bits of OCD, mm. or different things. And I think it's important to recognize these different conditions as uh, collections of traits that often run into other conditions and collections of traits. Is, is that something you'd agree with?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. We know that uh, that uh, autism, pure autism, if you want to call it that, with nothing else, vanishingly rare. There are some clinicians who would say you'll never see somebody with just autism in the clinic because just autism is pretty easy to live with. Mm. Autism is almost always accompanied by anxiety or depression or ADHD or epilepsy or intellectual disability. And it's almost always accompanied by stigma and uh, ostracism and bullying unfortunately so you're absolutely right and, and one thing that's important about recognizing that is that we have this phenomenon of, of diagnostic overshadowing and this again coming back to the underdiagnosis in women we know that for example um, women who present to an anorexia nervosa clinic um, w- about Twenty percent of them meet criteria for autism when they're given an, a, a diagnostic assessment. Oh. They don't have the diagnosis. Nobody's thought to think to see is this an eating disorder in the context of autism, rather than stopping with that first and of course very very gendered diagnosis. And yet it's incredibly important because for some autistic people, their eating difficulties will have nothing to do with weight concerns or shape concerns. They'll be about either sensory sensitivities or maybe wanting to keep your weight at a particular number. Maybe mm. it's a prime number, but you don't mind if you keep your weight at a different prime number that's healthier once it's been explained to you. So the the fact that diagnoses come together means that we have to, to be ready not to stop at the first diagnosis. But to think, is this social anxiety and autism, for example?
0: Mm. Talk to me then about the, the challenges of, of diagnoses. Uh, is, it, is it one that can be difficult? I mean, you mentioned the shadowing effect or how people present with different traits that may suggest a different diagnosis. Um, what do we know about those that are trying to figure this out in their own life and how they get the diagnosis?
2: Yes. So, the, the, I mean, the path to diagnosis has lots of stages. We have some people coming for first autism diagnosis in their 70s. Oh. There's nobody left to tell us about their really early years. Um, but you take a developmental history if you can, you observe the person in a structured setting where you're looking at their social and communication skills and styles. Um, and It can be a hard diagnosis to distinguish from other things, or it can be an absolutely barn door diagnosis that some people will say the receptionist in the autism clinic can tell from the way the person walks through the door, Mm. that person's going to get a diagnosis. But of course we mustn't fall into those stereotypes because then there will be other people, maybe those who are camouflaging, who don't look obviously autistic and you need to dig deeper. I could give you an example if you'd like. Yeah. A a, a woman that I met who... um, told me she was autistic when we first met I couldn't see see any signs of autism but of course I believed her I listened to her and interestingly she had been to acting school and she said that was partly to know how to act like everybody else mm. but uh, the first time I met her for about half an hour and I didn't see anything in her behavior that was obviously autistic the next time I met her for a bit longer and it was later in the day and she was tireder, and as the conversation went on I saw the mask slip so, I saw her facial expressions become much flatter, her voice become more monotone, her gestures that had been quite animated become sort of drop away and become more wooden and then sort of disappear altogether. And then, through some happenstance, she came to stay um, with my family for a weekend. And after about an hour, my children could have diagnosed her. Oh, wow. So, the camouflaging, the masking, You know it's it's real and um, you have to think about the diagnostic process if the diagnostic process is like my first half hour with her it's going to be very hard to diagnose her but if the diagnostic process pushes her a little bit in her comfort zone and is a little bit longer and asks her more about her inner experience then we're going to be able to to see the autism we're going to be able to identify it.
0: And how important is it for us to recognize that there is there is a spectrum of traits some some are presented more um, i don 't know more more obviously or more openly some are some are less so. Is that important for us to know about uh, autistic people
2: absolutely yes the, there's a wide variety of manifestations. And social difficulties and differences might show up as somebody who seems a bit socially aloof, but they could show up as somebody who's socially really clingy to that one child at school that they feel comfortable with, for example. So a wide range of manifestations. Um, And I sometimes think of it not so much as a spectrum, which... Suggest to me a kind of one line, mm. but I think of it as a constellation in space because you have those social and communication difficulties or skills, but they 're somewhat orthogonal to how rigid and repetitive you are and then again you have other dimensions like uh, intellectual functioning or language functioning, and all of these mean that each person is in a different place in this constellation, and you can 't really guess how their social skills will be based on how rigid and repetitive they are. So it's not one spectrum in my mind. It's really a constellation.
0: Mm. Talk to me a little bit about societal changes in the sense that um, is is the world, our workplaces, our schools adapting to this idea of neurodiversity of autistic people, and that maybe we're becoming more accommodating or or not at all. What what do you see?
2: Well, a big change over the 30 years that I've been working in autism research has been in the actual um, prevalence of autism diagnoses. Mm. So we're now at around about 1% of children and adults uh, meeting diagnostic criteria. And when I started in this field, it was estimated at four in 10,000. So a huge rise. And I think that has changed society's outlook and views. I think there's far less stigma about the autism diagnosis. And I think we see that in the fact that there are quite a lot of people, maybe in middle age and older, who are seeking an autism diagnosis. Um, And I think in some respects, society has improved its understanding. But sadly, we know from research that people do make negative first impressions of autistic adults that can be ameliorated by telling the observer that this is an autistic person, especially if the observer has some knowledge of autism. So knowledge is the key, improving knowledge. And you asked whether workplaces and schools are more accommodating. I think it's very variable. On the good side, there are some employers who actively seek to employ autistic people for the qualities such as reliability, eye for detail, honesty, and so on. On the other hand, there are a lot of schools that don't bend to the very simple accommodations that would make a child's life so much easier. So some schools where the child just can't cope with playtime and how chaotic and noisy it is, and all they want to do is be allowed to go and stack the shelves in the in the library. Mm. Why can't a school just accommodate to that, just to make the difference for that child? So it's very variable, I think. There are some really wonderful pockets of good practice, but a lot more that needs to be done.
0: Well, when you think about the future of research into autism, what are you most excited about?
2: What will happen in the future? I think that we've neglected in research people who have intellectual disability and autism, and I'm hoping that will be corrected. And I'm hoping technology is going to help us with that. Things like wearable devices, um, things so that we can monitor um, uh, heart rate and, uh, you know, arousal and so on to understand whether, for example, a child who is stimming, who's maybe rocking or tiptoe walking, is that calming them down or is that a sign of distress mm. so that we can understand and accommodate better to the needs of of children and adults that can't tell us in words what's going on with them. I'm quite excited by some research we're doing at the moment, which is about uh, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think has been under-recognized in autism. And we've got good reason to think that autistic people might be particularly vulnerable to PTSD. I say I'm excited about that, which sounds a bit odd, but I think that there are good treatments. And basically I think we need, you asked whether we should be curing autism. We should be finding good treatments for the things that make autistic people miserable. Mm. So adapting cognitive behavior therapy for anxiety and depression, Uh, sleep medications that can really transform a family's life, Um, treatment for PTSD and recognizing that a lot of autistic people experience a lot of trauma in their lives. Um, So I think as I've got older, I've become a little bit more pragmatic about wanting to make a difference to the lives of autistic people and their families sooner rather than just uh, through highfalutin theories that, of course, are also very interesting. Mm
0: I've been speaking with Francesca Happe, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at King's College London. Francesca, thank you for this really informative conversation. I appreciate the time.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. I really enjoyed it.
0: All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody, and we always enjoy reading your comments and welcome all newcomers to our show on our Facebook page. So please share your thoughts on what you heard today on autism and later-in-life diagnosis. Is a growing awareness leading to greater acceptance? Should employers shift their hiring criteria to embrace those with neurodivergence in the workplace? We'd love to hear from you. You can find the page at kcrw.com lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll see you next week.